Hey everybody, my name is Sarah Craig. I'm an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA. Today's topic is unstable AFib, and we're going to do it in seven questions. Now, there's a lot of lectures on AFib, and this is not the only, nor by any stretch of the imagination, the best one you'll hear. This is meant to be just a very focused lecture on what to do with hemodynamic management and, you know, just fixing them in general of the patient with unstable AFib. There's a lot of stuff we're not going to get into, but we're just going to focus. So the first question is, when we're talking about unstable AFib, what do we even mean by that? Because there's unstable and then there's unstable. And I had this idea when I was first learning about AFib, probably partially because of the ACLS pathway, that like, if the patient was hypotensive and they had AFib, you needed to shock them immediately or else some unspecified horrible thing would happen to them. And as many things that, you know, I was taught in medical school and, you know, sometimes in residency, it's not quite that simple. Because again, there's unstable and then there's unstable. And it is sometimes the case that you have a patient who is in AFib, and because they're in AFib, they are just so unstable that, you know, you just need to pretty immediately cardiovert them, or else they really will probably hemodynamically fall apart. That happens sometimes. But it's actually not really the most common thing that happens. I feel like the much more common situation when we say unstable AFib is that we have a patient, and they're in AFib, and they're kind of hypotensive, you know? Their MAP's less than 65, maybe. Their blood pressure's kind of 90 over 40 or 80 over something. They're just a little hypotensive and they're in AFib. That happens all the time, right? And I don't really feel like I had a great mental model for approaching that, necessarily coming out of residency. And, you know, even in some ways, I had to revise it quite a bit when I came out of fellowship. Because part of it is I think a lot of the time, for me at least, when I would talk about AFib, when I would present a patient with AFib, the main thing that we would talk about, the main sort of topic of my management part of my presentation, the main topic of discussion with me and my attending during residency would be the great beta blocker versus calcium channel blocker debate. That would be so much of what we talked about, you know, like we prefer calcium channel blockers, but only sometimes and cardiologists kind of like beta blockers, but then there's this and what dose and what if they get hypotensive. And this sort of beta blocker versus calcium channel blocker debate was really the focus. And I didn't really think about there being that much else I could even do. But in reality, that's not what it should be about. That should only be one component. And in fact, I would say drugs are really only one component in the toolbox that I use for unstable AFib. And in fact, Drugs are probably not even the most important component necessarily in that toolbox. So let's come away from the what is better, this drug or that drug conversation, and instead take a bigger picture approach to what are all the tools I have in my toolbox for how to think about AFib and how to manage it when you have a patient who's unstable. The first and most important question is, is the AFib primary or secondary meaning? Is the patient unstable because they're in AFib? Or are they unstable and also in AFib? Because here's the thing, especially in older sick hearts, when they're sick, when the patient has septic shock, when the patient is bleeding to death, when the patient's maybe heart failure volume overloaded, old sick hearts sometimes just go into AFib as a response to whatever is happening. Whether it's hypovolemia, hypovolemia, some kind of shock, whatever it is, 
That's kind of their version sometimes of sinus tachycardia. And in the same way that if a patient goes into sinus tachycardia, do we treat the sinus tachycardia? No, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. What do we do? We try to figure out and treat the cause of the sinus tachycardia. A lot of the time, it's the same with AFib. And in fact, if a patient isn't secondary AFib, meaning they're in AFib because they're septic, it's a manifestation of their heart failure, and we try and treat the AFib and the AFib alone, we give them a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker, that's not helping them. It's probably hurting them. Why? Because on some level, the AFib may be their attempt at a compensatory response. Now, a lot of the time, it's not a very functional compensatory response because the AFib now, it may take on a life of its own and it may really not be helping them, so it becomes its own primary problem. But I would say it's probably much more common that you have a patient who's unstable and then goes into AFib as opposed to a patient where the actual AFib is making them unstable. And some of the most sort of sick and interesting patients I've had, you know, I recently got called to see a patient who had a really interesting, complicated case of necrotizing pancreatitis. And, um, you know, it took me a while to figure this out because what did I get called for? I got called to a rapid response on the floor for unstable AFib, for AFib with RVR with hypotension. Now, it ended up being the case that the patient's belly was horribly tender, their pancreas was totally necrotic, it was very exciting. But a lot of the time, I get called to the floor or called to the ED or wherever for patients where we're really focused on the AFib. We're like, that is the problem. we got to fix the AFib. We get really focused on it when, in reality, the actual problem is something completely different. So it's really important to try and keep that hypothesis open. And again, maybe it started one way. The AFib was secondary. Now it's primary. Could be both. But just keep an open mind about what's causing what. Now, in the case, especially in the case when we do think that AFib is the primary problem, in other words, the AFib is causing the instability, the next question we have to ask is, do we have a rate problem or do we have a rhythm problem? Because often we'll say, oh, 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 well, we just need to control the rate, right? We don't actually need to treat the rhythm. The thing is, that's only true sometimes. And if you have a patient who's truly unstable from the AFib, you need to think about this. Because even if you have an elderly patient who's like 90, if they're in AFib with RVR, but like at 120, maybe they're unstable from their heart rate of 120, but like, really? I mean, in some of those low heart rates, is that really causing instability, that heart rate of 120, 130? I mean, if the heart rate's 180, I am totally buying that they're unstable because of their heart rate of 180, 100%. But a lot of the time, their heart rate's not 180. A lot of the time, they're unstable and their heart rate's a lot lower than that. And in fact, you know, it really came home to me in the CTICU that for them to be unstable because of AFib, they don't even need to necessarily be an RVR. Because sometimes what happens, especially in old sick hearts, which are often the hearts that go into AFib, they need their atrial kick. The rhythm of AFib is what's making them unstable just as much of the rate. Now, this is particularly true in patients who have diastolic dysfunction. Because what's happening with those patients is that their left ventricle, it's really thick. It's stiff. They have a super steep pressure volume curve. And so what happens is as that left ventricle is trying to fill, it kind of requires a lot of pressure to fill. And if you don't have that atrial kick providing that pressure, yeah, it doesn't fill very well. It gets really angry and upset. 
Now, you may not have an echo that says diastolic dysfunction, but patients with chronic heart failure often have this. Patients with aortic stenosis often has this. Elderly patients in general often have some degree of diastolic dysfunction. So remember that it may be the rate, but particularly if you suspect that they're unstable because of the AFib, keep in mind it could be the rhythm as well. If that's the case, obviously rate-controlling them isn't going to fix the problem. But I particularly think about this when I have rate-controlled them. I can't find another sort of secondary thing, like a sepsis or something else, causing the AFib. And I'm like, I rate-controlled them. I think they're unstable because of the AFib. What's going on? I start thinking rhythm. Now, if that's the case, obviously, yeah, the rate-control didn't help. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to rhythm-control them. Now we're like, well, what about their brain and throwing clots? I mean, absolutely. Is that a concern? That itself is a whole other lecture. But what I will say is that, you know, according to ACLS, if they're at all hypotensive, you're just supposed to shock them anyways. So, you know. Um, but at least think about it. Next, electrolytes. So you can do whatever you want to do to this patient. You can give them drugs. You can shock them. You can whatever it is. If you don't fix their electrolytes, if they have a serious disturbance in either their potassium or their mag, they're not going to get better. You just can't fix them unless you fix their K and their MAG. Now, usually, in fact, pretty much all the time, if they're an AFib or electrolytes are exacerbating their AFib, it's because K and MAG are low. Potassium, it's renal failure patient you don't really know maybe, or you just don't know what the potassium is. I'm less likely to give empirically, but sometimes I will. MAG, I almost always give empirically. Because here's the thing. It's really difficult to overdose somebody on MAG. I mean, we've all done our OB rotation, right? Like, we're giving those people, like, grams of mag an hour. Their mags will go up to, what, like, three, four, five, six sometimes? Now, I don't want a mag of six, but don't worry about checking a mag before giving your patient an AFib's mag. Why? Well, let's say your mag started out at 3.2. Now it's 3.4. It's okay. You're not overdosing them on mag. It takes a minute to do that. It's kind of unlikely. So I wouldn't worry about empirically giving them two grams. When I'm dealing with a patient with AFib, or really any tachydysrhythmia, I like to target a MAG greater than 2.2 and a K greater than 4.4. And I've been very struck, sort of, by how, like, really, I can do whatever I want to the patient, but if their MAG is 1, I am not getting them out of AFib until I fix it. The other reason I'll often give MAG right off the bat is that if their K is 2.9, I'm still not going to be able to fix their AFib, but remember you won't be able to effectively correct the potassium if the magnesium's low. So that's why I'll give mag right off the bat, plus minus potassium, depending what I think is happening. Also keeping in mind, giving the oral liquid potassium is the fastest way to get potassium in the person. Next thing, fluid status. So the atria don't like being stretched. They're just not that into it. And the problem is that stretching them out when there's too much fluid they don't like it, they go into AFib. But also, if you rapidly de-stretch them, they don't really like it either. Any kind of outward or inward rapid atrial stretch, they get unenthusiastic, and to express their displeasure, they go into AFib. Now, sometimes you can fix volume status rapidly, especially if you're just giving more volume. A lot of the time you can't, especially if you're taking off volume. So it is something that I try and fix, and I try and fix actively and aggressively, but volume status can be really hard to assess, but have it in your brain. The other reason this often plays out interestingly in AFib is that, you know how I said that patients in diastolic dysfunction, they don't like being in AFib? 
Unfortunately, those are the same patients that giving just a little too much fluid can push them into AFib. Because the thing about those patients is that for the same reason, you know, their ventricle's really stiff, that pressure volume curve is really steep. If you give them even just a little too much volume, because of how steep that pressure volume curve is, even just a little bit too much, and it backs up right away, and it basically, one, can put them into flash pulmonary edema, but more to the point for this lecture, can rapidly stretch that atria. So if I have a little old lady, and she's septic, and I think that's why, you know, she's an AFib, it's secondary AFib. I'm resuscitating her, I give her a little bit of fluid, then a little bit more, then all of a sudden the AFib gets way faster, or even just she goes into AFib in the first place. I'm starting to be like, oh, oops, am I dealing with diastolic dysfunction and atrial stretch? So you just got to be thoughtful about fluids in both directions in these patients, but you can also use their response to fluids as clues. Next, intrinsic sympathetic activity. So it turns out that we all have our own endogenous epidrips and norepidrips, right? Now, if your patient has their own endogenous epidrip that's going at a million because they're in pain, they're afraid, they're on meth, who knows? Well, I guess that's not their endogenous epidrip, but you know what I mean. Um, if they have their own intrinsic sympathetic activity that's going nuts, you can do whatever you want, but, you know, you're not going to get them out of AFib. And it's one of the things that we forget, because often these patients, they're sick, they're scared, they may be short of breath, you may be threatening to shock them with electricity, you may have just shocked them with a bunch of electricity, and yeah. And often what I see happen is we'll have somebody will be afraid to give them drugs to sedate them for cardioversion because they're hypotensive and bah, we can't give them drugs. We'll talk about this in a minute. So then we shock them out of AFib. It really hurts. Their endogenous norepidrip and epidrips go nuts and they go right back into it. This is counterproductive. So be mindful of this, especially in younger patients who may have AFib because they have a much more robust sympathetic response. So, you know, I'll do a little fentanyl if I think they're anxious, in pain, freaking out nice and patholytic. Often what I'll do if I can get it is Presidex. I really like Presidex, dexmedetomidine. Um, it's becoming a lot more available in EDs, and I use it in awake patients all the time. In fact, I am much more likely to put an awake patient who's 90 on Presidex than Ativan, God forbid, or Heldol or anything else. I really like using Presidex. Now, one of the side effects of Presidex that is usually a dose-limiting side effect is bradycardia. You know when that's nice? is if they have AFib. So I really like the combination of sort of start them on a Presidex strip. I can titrate it. And if I have any thought that I might shock this patient, I just get the Presidex started. I don't know if I'm going to shock them yet, but I get it started. It helps chill them out. It may actually help the AFib a little bit because it's going to make them a little more bradycardic. Then if I need to, I can do like a little fentanyl on top of that. And especially right before I shock, do a little Presidex, add a little fentanyl to prepare for shocking. But even if not, if I think their anxiety or intrinsic sympathetic activity is one of the big drivers or a partial driver of the AFib, I pay great attention to that and I try to address it. Now, last, almost last, but not least, is drugs. I'll have you note that this is one of the last things we talk about. Because drugs, you know, are like, you should see it as this sort of icing on the cake. That if you do none of those things and only give drugs, it may not get you there. Or you may end up having to give doses of drugs that now you're getting a bunch of side effects. So, drugs. We need to think about two categories of drugs that we're using. The first is rate and rhythm control. But the second is drugs for hypotension. Because all the time, we're like, well, 
we can't give the appropriate dose of calcium channel or beta blocker because they'll get hypotensive. Or, you know, more relevantly in this conversation, well, we need to shock them, but we cannot possibly sedate them because they'll get hypotensive. This is what push-dose pressors are made for. This is what phenylephrine is for. You know, I think what I really learned, or one of the many things I learned from anesthesia during fellowship was the you break it, you buy it rule. Because all day, every day, they go and they go to the OR and they push drugs that make the patients hypotensive. And they don't sit there and be like, well, we can't give general anesthesia because the patient might get hypotensive. Of course, they're going to get hypotensive. That's often what happens when you give general anesthesia. So you know that's going to happen. And so you're allowed to give whatever you need to give. Support their blood pressure if you know you're giving drugs that caused it. Balance it out. Same thing with conscious sedation. Get, you know, some push-dose pressure, some push-dose NIA, 100 mics of phenylephrine. Just give like 50 to 200 at a time. Support the blood pressure. You can do that to sort of support their hypotension when they're in AFib, both to sort of support them through getting sedation. But also, if you're like, do I really need to shock this person? What if I, you know, I'm trying to shock them, but AFib's kind of hard to cardiovert. Do I need to give them mag before I shock them? Do I need to give them a drug before I shock them? Drugs to support the blood pressure can just buy you time, stabilize the situation, so you can take the moment to treat AFib in a sort of multi-tool way, thoughtfully, rather than just being like, blah, shock them, okay? So phenylephrine is probably the best one to use here because it only has alpha-1. It doesn't have any beta to give you chronotropic effects. So phenylephrine is my favorite drug to use here. Again, push dose or in a drip. That can support you through a lot. Now, drugs for rate and rhythm. Here's the thing. If they're in unstable AFib, I am unlikely to use a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker. Why? A couple reasons. The first one is, so often my unstable AFib, it's secondary rather than primary. Now, if I'm giving them a drug, it's because either I think that maybe it's primary or more commonly I'm like, maybe now the AFib, which was maybe originally your secondary, has taken on a life of its own. And now being an AFib is causing a problem on top of whatever problem they had in the first place. So if that's the case, and I have a patient and the primary problem is they're bleeding or they're septic or they're in heart failure, you know what I don't want to do? Give them a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker. That is not going to help them. That's going to make them more hypotensive. It's shooting myself in the foot. Not to mention the fact, let's say I try and correct the AFib, but really it's just not the AFib that's the problem. I'm totally wrong. It's only the, say, sepsis that's the problem. You know what I probably want to do next? Start them on some norepi. You know what's going to happen if I give them a beta blocker and then I start them on norepi? Yeah, nothing good. I am being literally counterproductive. And so especially because often I don't know what's happening with a lot of these patients, I don't want to give them something I know is going to make them hypotensive. And even if it is a patient who I do think AFib's the primary problem, that they're unstable because they're an AFib, those patients are often very tenuous from a cardiac standpoint especially if their AFib's not that fast. And so I just want to be thoughtful about, do I want to be slamming this unstable patient with beta blockers and or calcium channel blockers? Both because it interferes with the mechanism of pressors and drugs I might want to use again, and also because even if my AFib's primary, these patients are often a little tenuous and I want to be thoughtful about it. So I'll use them sometimes, but the vast majority of the time, Using a drug for me, an unstable AFib, I use amiodarone. One, 
It can make you a little hypotensive, yes, but it does not directly conflict with the mechanisms of your oppressors. So I can give amiodarone and then norepinephrine, and we're good, right? Also, it's probably going to make you a little bit less hypotensive. Now, one of the issues with amiodarone, of course, is that it can actually cardiovert them, not just rate control them. Now, with unstable AFib, your cost-benefit for cardioverting versus rate controlling is very different than in stable AFib, which is why in unstable AFib, the, like, official ACLS paradigm is not have a very long conversation about whether they may have a clot, but just cardiovert them. Now, I actually think you actually have more time to have that conversation often if you're appropriately supporting and managing unstable AFib. But either way, you know, by the time you're at that paradigm, that is a lower thing on your list of priorities. Um, and so I'll often tend to give them an amio load 150. Then I'll load them again with another 150. You give those over about 10 minutes. Then I'll start them on a drip. Is it the only drug I use? No. But those are the reasons that I like it in truly unstable AFib. Ditch. I really like ditch. The problem with ditch is, one, if they have renal dysfunction, your dosing get a little tricky, and a lot of these patients might. But more importantly, it takes time. Ditch is just not going to work right away. And so, especially if they're unstable, I kind of want something that I don't have to sit there and wait for hours and hours till their ditch load takes effect. So that's why amiodarone is a drug that I like to use in the particular case of unstable AFib. If I'm going to use a beta blocker, if for whatever reason I think that that's the right thing to do for this patient, esmolol can be nice to see if we can sort of break that vicious cycle. Because if I give esmolol and then everything falls apart, their hemodynamics fall apart, or I give esmolol and I'm like, oops, just kidding, they're really septic, it's okay. It doesn't last very long. I can give some levofed. But if I give esmolol and everything gets better, the AFib gets better, the patient gives better, everything looks good, well, now I'm like, okay, actually, you know what? In this patient, a beta blocker fixes things. This is good. I gave esmolol. It worked, but then it cleared out. Now I feel much more comfortable giving something like a longer-acting metoprolol. So that's how I think about drugs. Now, finally, when and why to shock. And I'll have you note that this is the last slide under unstable AFib, not the first one. One of the reasons for that is that it's actually not that easy to shock AFib. AFib is a dysrhythmia that can be quite refractory to electricity, it turns out. And what I found is particularly if I haven't corrected all of these other things, it can be very hard to shock out of. So if I can keep my patients stable, maybe a little phenylephrine drip, I'm giving them some mag, maybe I decide to give them a dose of amio, although it's not requisite at all before shocking them, but maybe I'll give them a drug first. But if I'm doing all these things, I'm not getting anywhere. I've now had time to maybe calm them down, gently sedate them a little bit with a little Presidex, a little fentanyl, maybe just fentanyl, or at the very least, I've had time to get a neo, a phenylephrine drip going so that I now feel comfortable giving conscious sedation. Now I can shock them. I always start at 200 because it's just, again, not that easy to cardiovert AFib. Often it won't work. That's okay. If it doesn't work, I'll maybe try again like once right there, but often at that point, I'll go back and be like, am I failing to fix something? Do I need to fix their volume status? Do I need to fix their electrolytes? Maybe I do need to give them a round of a drug before I do something. Do I need to sedate them more steeply before I shock them so that I'm not hitting their own sympathetics? Something. Because I think shocking them over and over and over again is probably not getting you anywhere. The patient doesn't like it. And if you're shocking them and it's not working, then try modifying other factors and see if that'll be successful for you. So, to review. 
This is a very short discussion of unstable AFib in seven questions. The first one is, is it a primary problem or secondary problem? The second question is, do we have a rate problem or a rhythm problem? The third question is, when to shock, who to shock, why to shock? But it probably won't work until you start fixing things like electrolytes, their K and their mag, their fluid status, too high, too low, got to address their sympathetic tone, and medications should be one of the later things that you think about, and really just one of the tools in the entire toolbox you're going to use to address unstable AFib.